Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will never stop learning and never stop laughing. NSL Double Talk, featuring Jamie Metzel and Vanessa Gregoriadis. Their topic today is CRISPR. What is it, and should we be concerned? Jamie is a senior fellow of the Atlantic Council, novelist, blogger, syndicated columnist, media commentator, and expert in Asian affairs and biotechnology policy. He is the author of The Depths of the Sea, Genesis Code, and The Eternal Sonata. Vanessa is a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine and Vanity Fair. She is the winner of a National Magazine Award. Her first book, Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus, answers the questions about sexual consent currently in national debate. We are so excited to welcome Jamie and Vanessa to NSL Double Talk. Hi, Jamie. It's so nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. We're at this crazy moment when after four billion years of evolving by the Darwinian principles of random mutation and natural selection, we are in many ways taking the reins of our own evolution. And it'll show up first in healthcare, but pretty soon we're going to see that the genetics revolution is about much more than healthcare. Okay, so let's go back a little bit. So for me, just as a regular, you know, mom and New Yorker and person who waited quite a while to have my kids, I know this genetic stuff mostly through like the world of IVF, right? Where sure. friends are always going in to get different procedures. And now you can definitely find out which, are you having a boy or a girl, right? Well, that's if you the, go to have IVF for sure. sure. But that's the least of it. That's I mean, the least of right. it. But you could find out what, like what, if you go to a regular kind of IVF clinic, you can definitely pick like your eye color now, mm-hmm. right? And you can pick for, you can select for genetic diseases. Right. But, can you select for intelligence? And is there anybody in the U.S. who is doing that at this point? So let's take a step back and unpack what you just said. First, to do what you've just described, you need to have a child through IVF, in vitro fertilization. It's been around for about 40 years. Isn't that the way everybody does it now? You know, we're we're in New York, (laughs) so it it feels like it. Um, And so it's been around for 40 years. As a matter of fact, we just had a birthday party for Louise Brown, who was the world's first IVF baby. She wasn't there, but we had an IVF-themed dinner party. And then... um, What did you serve at that party? We served like... Eggs? E- eggs and tapioca, <laughs> and, uh, and it was it was very consistent. Actually, Louise sent us a nice note. And then you need to have to use another procedure called pre-implantation genetic testing. Today, what's the information that we can get? Well, the most important thing is we can learn about single gene mutation diseases. Lots of diseases are genetically complex, but some of them are are single gene mutations. Diseases like a Down syndrome. Well, not or? Down syndrome, mm-hmm. but it's things like Tay Sachs, like sickle cell disease. Down syndrome is chromosomal, but that can also be tested. And then there are some relatively simple traits like hair color and eye color uh, that can also be tested now. But 
because we are sequencing the genomes of these pre-implanted embryos, then the question is, what can be known from a genome? And it, your genome when you're a fertilized egg is the same as your genome um, when you are uh, an adult. And so then where, where this is going is as we understand more and more of what genes do, we're going to be able to make these kinds of decisions during uh, an IVF and PGT based on that knowledge. So do you support that? Do you support well, knowing as much as you possibly could about that embryo and being able to choose which well, embryo? I'm a big data person mm -hmm. everywhere. I just think that I would rather have more information in every domain of life rather than, uh, than less. So certainly, if I were having a child and I could have information about that child's future health state of whether they were going to have or even die from terrible diseases or whether they had a higher than average likelihood of living a longer, healthier, and more robust life, I, for one, would certainly want that. There are many people who wouldn't want that because they have an idea, well, this is fate. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I think if we had accepted fate by meaning nature just as it found us, we would live very different lives. We wouldn't have developed agriculture or medicine. I mean, we've been fighting against fate or nature or whatever it is for many, many thousands of years. So I certainly would want that information. But it gets more complicated uh, because as we understand more and more of what our genes do, it's, this isn't just about health. It'll be about every genetic quality that we have. And so then that leads us to the question of how genetic are we? And the big way that scientists have been testing that has been decades of twin studies. And the summary of all those twin studies is basically this, that if you have identical twins who are raised apart in very different circumstances, they end up being more similar to each other than fraternal, non-identical twins who are raised in the same room. So we are highly genetic beings. And it's different. You know, different tra some traits are more genetic, like height. Some traits are less genetic, like personality style. But nearly all of our traits have some genetic component. And as billions of people are eventually sequenced and we compare the genotype, what their genes say, to the phenotype, how, the, how those genes are expressed over the course of their lives, we're going to know a lot more than just these simple genetic diseases and traits. We're going to be able to predict with increasing accuracy more complex diseases and ultimately more complex traits. So as somebody who, you know, certainly supports knowing more about your child, of course I would want to know if a child had Tay-Sachs or something. There's absolutely right. no reason to bring children into the world if you you could make that decision. And obviously, you know there's that some religious die. people right. that would say it differently. But, you know... The other stuff makes me really squeamish. It does make me squeamish to start selecting for intelligence or something like that. And what you discussed already, the pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, you know, that's like an extra $5,000 that people have to pay to get that, which to some people might not be a big deal. You know, and certainly if it's going to help you not have a miscarriage, people would be very interested in doing it or you know, help some horrible thing like having Tay-Sachs. But when you look at regular middle-class people who are pinching pennies to go have IVF, which costs like 20 grand, right, already, then you start getting into this question of, well, are you going to pay the extra five grand to select for gender or select for these other things we can select for? And where does that end? You know, I heard a rumor that there's somebody in the U.S. who is saying, I can make you a million dollar baby right now through predictive genomics. I can get you the smartest baby, the healthiest baby. I can make you that baby right now. I don't think that person can. 
uh, whoever they are, no matter how much you pay based on the state of the science now. Mm -hmm. But 10 years from now, that will be possible. And that doesn't mean that they're going to know, we're going to know everything about genetics. But genetics are becoming more predictive. And that's mm -hmm. the, as our healthcare moves from generalized to precision to predictive, our understanding of our genetics, our systems biology, and ultimately our lives will follow that same trajectory. And so that's, that's why this is so challenging. And you, you talked about your value system of that you would pay for health um, but you wouldn't pay for what you consider to be an enhancement. And that's a perfectly legitimate personal view. But other people will come to different conclusions. And based on the legal environment and the regulatory environment in a given society, that could unleash some kind of competition. For example, right now, we're having a measles outbreak in, in New York uh, and across the country. And so when somebody has a child who has measles, what do most of us think? Not, oh, that's too bad for that kid. They think their parents, that child's parents, made an ideological decision that not only harmed their child, sure. but it harmed the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And so increasingly, many genetic diseases will come to be seen as parental choices, that there was an option of screening out these diseases and not aborting fetuses. This is at the stage of deciding which pre-implanted embryo to be implanted in the mother. And in the future, it will be seen that parents made an ideological decision to either undergo this kind of procedure or not. But are we going to have an overclass then? Like, I well, mean, it's, it's all of these questions are questions of values. And the question for us is, what are our values? And if we are worried about what our values will be in the future, the best way to prevent that kind of dystopian future is to say, well, what are our values now? How can we make sure that we are living our values today so that when we get to the future, we will know who we are? And so anybody who's worried about genetic inequality in the future should be desperately worried about inequalities today and even biological inequalities because the average child born today in, in, in the Central African Republic is functionally brain damaged, not because there's anything wrong with those kids, but because there's a civil war and the parents are, are malnourished. And so no matter what education those kids get, they aren't going to be able to function on average at the same level as our kids will. And so if we are worried about this dystopian future, as we should be, we need to be talking about the issues, but we also need to be living those our best mm -hmm. values today. So Obamacare doesn't have coverage mm -hmm. for IVF, right? Even though employers are starting to step up because right. they realize it's a good mm -hmm. recruiting and retention sure. tool for women in their yeah, 30s in sure. particular, right, who are concerned about this. So why wouldn't the U.S. say, you know what? We're going to pay for everybody to have mm -hmm. IVF. And you know what? We're going to screen out whatever we can. Let's screen out a lot of stuff. Let's, you want to have a boy? Let's make some more boys. Let's do, you know, let's become, I mean, why, you know, why not? Well, let me unpack your question a little bit. So um, it certainly is logical. It just, uh, from a rational perspective for governments to provide assistant, assisted reproduction treatments across the population. There's a huge governmental interest, first, in making sure that everybody has the greatest opportunity to have a healthy baby. And right now that we have in the United States that we have such variation uh, between just the prenatal care that different mothers receive, that's it's terrible. And because society bears the cost of what happens when there isn't that kind of, of support, 
we would all we all should have just a national and a governmental interest in making sure that that's the case. But in addition, we have lots of kids who are born with terrible, painful, and, very, and in many cases, deadly genetic diseases. And in the Jewish community, uh, Tay-Sachs has been almost completely eliminated because there was a, a big education and outreach program. But sickle cell disease, for example, which could have that same kind of benefit of, of education and screening is now far too prevalent. And so the government certainly has a stake in educating people. But beyond that, I believe that the government would conceptually at least have an incentive to make sure that everybody had access once it's proven that IVF and pre-implantation genetic testing are safer than natural birth across the board. Because when we add up the total lifetime cost of care for everybody born with a terrible genetic disease, I mean, it's an enormous amount of money. It's in the many hundreds of billions of dollars. And all you would need to do is divide that amount by the number of people who are having babies in the United States. And you would get to a number that already is roughly equivalent um, to what people are paying for IVF and PGT. Uh, but as the cost of IVF and PGT go down, because for example, sequencing, which is part of it, genome sequencing, in, in 2003, it was a billion dollars. Now it's a thousand dollars, but it's mm -hmm. going towards really negligibility in a relatively short period of years. As those costs go down, we need to have a more rational system. So wait, who is in control of all of this? Is this just the genome nerds who are having parties with eggs on the 40th birthday of IVF? Or are there governments are who are thinking How about this? <laughs> <I mean. laughs> no, so, so, you said it. So governments are thinking about it. <laughs> But it's almost too big and too scary for most governments uh, to get their heads around. And certainly in societies that have national health systems like Britain, like Singapore, uh, there's a much stronger incentive to think rationally about, uh, about how the, this works systemically. And in the United States, where on average people change health plans every year and a half, there's nobody who is empowered to think systemically. And the government is fighting over so many different issues around healthcare, the issue of IVF and abortion rights often overlap because, yeah, because there is a destruction of whatever they're called, but these are very early stage pre-implanted embryos. So it, it gets so complicated so quickly that it's frightening for many politicians to weigh in. And that's why a lot of this in the United States is happening with regulators. In the United Kingdom, they had a three-year national debate on whether they should authorize clinical trials of a process called mitochondrial transfer, which is it has some relatively small genetic changes in an embryo. And then they had a full vote of both houses of parliament to authorize the clinical trials, which then went back to the regulators, um, who then uh, gave out a small number of licenses. That's a really so that rational way is, of so operating. So that mitochondrial yeah. transfer thing is yeah. basically a way of getting rid of the female biological clock, if I understand it correctly. Not really. So basically, if you imagine a cell as having an egg yolk, which is the nucleus, and the egg white, which is the cytoplasm, most of our DNA, the huge majority of our, our DNA is in our nucleus, but there's a small amount of DNA uh, that is in the egg yolk, the, the cytoplasm. And women with mitochondrial disease will pass their faulty mitochondria to their kids in various amounts. 
And so if you get a lot of faulty mitochondria, and because, as you correctly state, the mitochondria are the power packs of the cell, then you, your, your cells don't get energy, and it can be a very painful and often deadly disease. So there's a process called mitochondrial transfer, which is basically swapping egg yolks. So you can do it at the egg level, where you have the mother's egg yolk and a donor's egg white, or you can do it with a fertilized egg. Ah, uh, so you still need a young person's egg. No, 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 you don't. It's your egg yolk and somebody else's egg white. It doesn't matter. The age isn't the thing. It's that the donor doesn't have diseased mitochondria, and you do, which is why you're getting the donor mitochondria. Right, but essentially, if you're a woman with a 50-year-old egg, you can have something injected into this other woman's egg and then implant it inside you and it's still your DNA. When the baby comes out, it will be your baby. Yeah, so that's the thing I'm pushing against. That's I, not I true. Get, I get okay. what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true. Like, that was my understanding. Okay, I'm yeah, not a yeah, scientist. Yeah, but just because if the mitochondrial DNA were the sole determinant of the genetic age of the embryo or the egg, that would be the case, but that is not the case. Okay, so yeah. then that is truly three-party IVF. Yeah, so it that's truly what they call is it, three-parent three baby. It's that, a three-parent baby with three different people's DNA in it. Exactly. Holy moly, that is And that already crazy. exists. Yeah, yeah. Right, but not in the U.S., not, well, there are people in the U.S. who have it because um, they there, have there the was, disease. No, no, oh. because there were a small number of um, early cases that were done in New Jersey, um, but now it's banned in the United States. So it's happening elsewhere. It happened in Ukraine. Happened in Mexico, mm -hmm. but it, it is not authorized currently in the United so States. So, don't you feel like you're running around with your hair on fire all the time, trying to tell people about this? And this is like the this huge issue. Like when you start thinking about it. it well, everybody th th talks about climate change, but nobody talks about this. This is a podcast, and so <laughs> I'm sure your listeners will imagine that I have all of this hair that even could be on fire. So thank you for, for saying that. Right. But, Luxurious. But absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to describe it a little more? Um, but that is exactly the case. I mean, I really feel that we are on the verge of this fundamental revolution that will transform how we do healthcare, how we make babies, and ultimately the nature of the babies we make. And yet every day we open up the newspapers and what do we see? We see Trump, we see terrorism even, all these stories that feel really important now, but compared to what is actually happening in the big picture of human habitation on Earth, they're relatively small. But these issues are so big and so hard to get your arms around um, that people shy away from them. It's much easier to focus on these things that are maybe even more entertaining and more immediate and that are just are right in front of us. And that's why I've, I've written my book. So your book, Hacking Darwin, how is it set up? Is it a quest? Are you in it? Do you, or is it merely your research or tell us about it? So um, let me let me take a step back. So my last, this is, Hacking Darwin is my fifth book. Um, my last two books have been near-term sci-fi novels, Genesis Code on the Future of Human Genetic Engineering and Hacking Darwin on Human Life Extension. And what I found that when I was going around on my book tours for those novels and I explained to people the science, the underlying science, not the way a scientist would explain science, but the way a, a novelist would explain the science, just telling the story of the science, all of a sudden, I could see people's eyes widening because suddenly they'd heard all these words. They'd heard IVF, they'd heard CRISPR, they'd heard all the genetics and sequencing, but they didn't know how the, story, how the pieces fit together. And then it was then that I realized that I needed to tell 
the story of the genetics revolution on a very human level. So in many ways, the book, I mean, I certainly talk about my experiences, but the book, it's the story of where we're coming from and where we're going and what are the implications and what we need to do now in order to prepare. Mm-hmm. So tell us about CRISPR. So I and many other people were shocked when we read in the newspaper that mm-hmm. the Chinese had essentially created a CRISPR baby. Did you know that was going to happen? Did I you didn't. know that doctor? I didn't know Dr. Hu and, and very, very few people knew that this was happening. Luckily, I was able to add that to my book. But the reason why I didn't have to make very many changes to my book is that in the book, which was completed, except for this little change before this happened, I had talked about how China was the Wild West for genetic engineering. And I had laid down all of the reasons why everything that could happen was going to happen in China and it did. And so certainly, Dr. He, um, what he did was unbelievably unethical and dangerous. And I think, in my view, there's a pretty significant likelihood that these two young girls will be harmed over the course of their lives. So the I, infants. It's unnecessary human experimentation. And the gene edit that he made to these embryos was entirely unnecessary because they were— He gave them a gene edit, something to do with HIV, Correct. Right? So each one of them, they had a father who was HIV positive and a mother who wasn't. And so the idea— was that he was going to give these kids greater resistance to HIV. But they weren't going to be born with HIV anyway because there are lots of ways to fix that, to, to, right. to prevent it, to mm-hmm. prevent the transmission from father to child. And so his idea was to give them a, a mutation of the CCR5 gene, which is Northern Europeans have it pretty much more than, uh, than anybody else. And when they have it, it makes it harder, essentially, for the AIDS virus to penetrate into mm-hmm. the cell. And so that was, it was not a needed therapy. It, if it had worked, it would have been an enhancement, but it was an unnecessary but it, Well, the cynical view is that he wanted to at least say he was doing something good, right? He didn't yes. want to just go in there and say, they're smarter. <laughs> Well, but I don't even think they're smart. I mean, there was one study that came out a few weeks ago that people with this mutation could have some advantage. And that's, I don't, that's not even, uh, even. No, but I'm saying that he didn't want to say they're smarter. He wanted to say, at least I've done something good. I've made a positive effect in these kids' lives. But But why would they be hurt over the course of their lives because of that? The reason is because our genes aren't single on-off switches. It's not like there's a bunch of light switches and each one is on and off. Are you going to be tall or are you going to be short? There's a small number of diseases, these Mendelian diseases, that actually do have an on-off switch. But most of our life is complicated. And our genes aren't doing one thing. It's a a symphony of all genes and they have different functions, different relationships. And we don't know everything. We don't, we know a tiny portion of what our genes do and how they work. And so for cases where there are these single gene mutation diseases that cause early death, it's relatively easy calculus because we can say, well, we know that this kid is going to die before they're 10 years old if we don't fix it. Right. It's worth the risk. Exactly. And so I would have loved for the first story of a gene edited baby to have been, there was a kid who was going to be born with this terrible, deadly, single Mendelian genetic disease. Mm -hmm. And they were going to have it because either it was a a dominant uh, disease that one of their parents had or a recessive disease that both of their parents were carriers of. Right. Instead of... That would have been a great story. Instead of throwing away the embryo, you're saying, basically. Instead of throwing away, instead of making a change 
that was totally unnecessary right. and risky mm -hmm. and doing it outside of the entire oversight process of the review board, of his own hospital, of any kind of transparency. And that's one of the things that's propelled the creation of this International Advisory Committee, is that we recognize that there needs to be a greater international oversight and ultimately regulation. So let's talk about one other thing that a lot of people are concerned about, which is cancer and mm. what CRISPR's influence in cancer could be and what we have right now that we're not allowed to use because of regulations. So let me go broad and then go narrow. Um, the story of the genetics revolution will be wonderful. I mean, there are these dangers that we've talked about, but all in all, it's going to help us uh, live healthier, longer, more robust lives and treat and cure lots of diseases. So cancer is a, a great case in point. One of the reasons why you get cancers more when you're older than you're younger is that your body is better at fighting cancers when you're younger. And there's a new whole new class of treatments called gene therapies. And within that, there are CAR T therapies, which are specifically for cancer, that you take out some of your cells, usually blood cells, and you gene alter them so that they have become cancer-fighting supercells. And so it's your cells that have been given these superpowers, put them back into your body and let them go at it. And so it's really great and it's really exciting. There's not some kind of nefarious reason why um, those treatments aren't more uh, widely available. It's that what we're talking about is making some pretty fundamental changes to a person and we would want to have a regulatory body that is looking at that very carefully. Because uh, in the 90s, in, in the first wave of gene therapies, a young man unfortunately died at the University of Pennsylvania, and then the brakes got pulled on all of gene therapy. And so if we're moving into this new area, there's a natural conservatism that's healthy and good, but there are many thousands of clinical trials that are awaiting approval and will get approval. Do you think we'll cure cancer in our lifetime through CRISPR and other... I think we'll cure many cancers. We've seen our biology as fixed in many ways, and we're going to recognize that our, our biology across the board is far more variable than we think. Mm -hmm. So you mean the like a lung cancer or a breast cancer or something that is affects large numbers of people? You think that those are the ones? It could be. I mean, it'll depend on the nature of the cancer and the nature of the treatment. But mm -hmm. what we've found is that not all cancers are alike. So there could be five cases that we all call breast cancer, but they're very different from each other. But mm -hmm. certainly in general, more cancers are going to become more treatable, and I think many will become preventable. Let me ask you about IVF in terms of cancer risk to the mother. You're being pumped with all these hormones. Aren't you getting a cancer risk for the mother? I haven't seen any evidence of that. I have a natural instinct to trust biology because our bodies have evolved over 4 billion years, and so all these kind of crazy things uh, that we do, including things in our diet, exposures to x-rays when we fly, or um, and so there are all kinds of things. But I haven't seen evidence of any significant harm to the mother through IVF. Do you have kids? I don't. Would you have kids the natural way? You know, it's, everybody asks me this, not only about having kids the natural way, but then people ask me on top of that, how far would you go in screening your children? And so for me, the first question I ask is, what is the natural way? We aren't living our lives the natural way. We aren't living in caves and, and hunting for our food. We live in homes. We have health care. We have agriculture. There's nothing about our lives that are, quote, unquote, natural, meaning the way they used to be. 
And so if you believe that, then IVF is just as natural as what we now call natural childbirth. So I would be very, very open to it, especially I'm a little bit older um, because this is a podcast. I'll say not that much older. <laughs> Nobody can test it out unless you go to my website. Yeah. Um, and um, so I'm, I certainly am open to it, and I'm open to it both um, for screening out uh, any kinds of dangers and for thinking about, about all kinds of life optimizations that we will be able to predict um, what genetic patterns give someone an increased likelihood of living a long and healthy life. And so it's not just about whether you're gonna have some terrible disease when you're a kid. It's a, it, we will also be able to have more ability to predict who is more likely than average to have early onset Alzheimer's or not, who is more likely than average uh, to live a, a very long and healthy life than not. And so why wouldn't, for me, I think, why wouldn't I, or for all intents and purposes, anybody want to have that information? But there's a social reason right. why something about it, it just feels unnatural. It feels uncomfortable. And, and maybe that's good, is they, that we don't want to have a species that's chasing after, um, after every technological opportunity, every, uh, you know, every story that seems magical. And so there could be dangers that we aren't foreseeing. So the oldest child of IVF is 40. I mean, bless Louise Brown, but it could be that that everybody who has IVF drops dead at 41 and we just right. don't know it. Right. And, and so there's- a, there, <laughs> Heaven forbid. There, yeah, no, yeah. it makes you live a long and healthy life. Um, but so there are reasons for this uh, conservatism and, and it's, there's, it's not wrong. But you know, for me as somebody who, who spends a lot of my life thinking about this kind of, of future, I'm certainly very open to it and I'm maybe less nostalgic than other people for the way things have been because what we call fate now, like kids dying young or people dying prematurely of these terrible diseases, I think that sucks. If we can fight nature to get rid of that, why wouldn't we? We fought every other disease and plague that's that's come Absolutely. our way. Absolutely. I think the issue is that it could become a genomics arms race and we could not know it, but, you know, Qatar could be doing this right now and, you know, we just didn't hear about it yet or something. It, it, Even it if there's be, not a, a yeah, no, cave it, in yeah, New Mexico it, where they're making the it babies. It could be, it's, but what is evolution other than a genetic arms race? Like if we didn't have a genetic arms race, we'd be yeah, single cell organisms. I know, but that's but but this is this is on a different level. It's I don't think you level. can break it down. That it's much. on a different level, and it's at a different speed. But this is technology that exists, and we can't wish it away. So the question is, how can we use it most responsibly? Right, and I'm saying the winner could potentially be the country that doesn't use it responsibly, or just says if we have it. Let's do it. Let's get everybody in the royal family on this program right now. You know, like, I mean, that's the kind of sci-fi yeah. scenario. And I so. write, write sci-fi, so I, I think about this stuff. But yes, and so societies now and in the coming years will be making massive bets about the future. And part of those bets will be how they think about and regulate all kinds of technologies, whether it's AI or genomics. Part of it will be how they regulate privacy because big data pools and AI 
are the foundation of unlocking the secrets of the genome. So it could be that societies uh, like the European Union that have very strong privacy protections have essentially opted out of competitiveness right. in the 21st yeah. century. And that's kind of my gut feeling is most likely outcome. And it could be that countries like China that have massive, increasingly uniform data pools and few privacy protections are actually better positioned to take advantage of those data pools. And what about us? What and about we're, us? We're, we're somewhere we're in the middle. middle. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But the opposite could also be true. It could be um, that societies with strong privacy protections give people the confidence to share their information. You get higher quality records and you don't need a billion or plus records. You just need... 10 million really high quality records that people would have more faith in. So I don't know the answer to this, but what I, what I definitely will say is there will be big bets that societies will make wittingly or unwittingly. And those bets will play out into different levels of competitiveness across the 21st century. And that for every society, there's no inevitable floor and there's no inevitable ceiling. If you were a Mongol in the 14th century, where you just, you, you've had mm. the, the world's largest empire from then until now, and you had a couple of, you know, bad decades. You say, well, you know, things are going bad, but we're the Mongols, the you know, greatest power in, in history. How bad could it be? Well, it, it got pretty bad, and now they're not, I, mean, I love the Mongols, but they're a lot smaller and weaker than they once were. So if societies are hyper-competitive or uncompetitive, there will be very real consequences. Mm -hmm. And what we're talking about are these Promethean technologies, and whether it's genomics or AI or nanotech or even 5G and the Internet of Things that are, are going to determine how they're adopted is going to determine how societies form, how people interact, and levels of national competitiveness in the 21st century. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks so much, Jamie. That was very fun. My pleasure. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning. 